The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today, not just because I'm recording with Charlie, but because we have an absolutely amazing guest of us. Who have we got on, Charlie? Tell us. We are very lucky today. We have got Dr. Eilish Gregory with us today. Now, she is a doctor of early modern British history. Yes, yes, we're going early modern, we're going 17th century, so that's why I'm here. She's also a postdoctoral research associate at the Royal Historical Society, so we are getting some quality guests today, Alina. Eilish has held research fellowships at the Folger Shakespeare Library, at Durham University and at Marsh's Library, and she teaches at the University of Reading. She's on today because her book, Catholics During the English Revolution, 1642 to 1660, Politics, Sequestration and Loyalty was published by Boydell Press in March and she's very kindly agreed to come and talk to us about it today. So hello Eilish. Hello Charlotte, hello Lena. thank you so much for having me on today. I'm really oh. looking forward to this. Do you know why? There's a reason behind this because uh-huh. you have an eidetic memory and you're going to teach me something. Well <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. So we're going to learn a bit, bit, bit about kings and queens. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sad that I don't know this. I will learn. One day I will learn this time period. <laughs> I promise you. So we were joking that Alina needs to get the special ruler that I'm sure many of our listeners have picked up either for themselves or for a friend at um, one of the many amazing museums we have around the country. And it is the ruler that has every single monarch of Great Britain listed down the ruler and the date that they came to the throne. So the joke is here that Eilish has a very, very special talent to share with us. <laughs> um, basically, yeah, um, for, for your listeners, um, I've just told Charlotte and Lee before we started that um, I, since I was probably about eight or nine years old, I've known all the dates of the kings and queens of Britain from 1066 to the present day off by heart. And it wasn't down to me memorising them. I just have this memory that's like a sponge sometimes. <laughs> so, so it was great when I was doing like periodic tables for GCSE chemistry and stuff like that. It wasn't so good for practical <laughs> things like maths and everything. Oh, amazing. This is great. Okay, so shall we, shall we test her, Alina? What do you think? Do you know what? I think you're going to have to test her because I have no idea where we're going with this. Because I, I have the ruler. Okay, we'll start with an easy one. King Richard III. 1483 to 1485. Awesome. Okay. King Edward IV. Well, this is an interesting one because he was king from 1461 to 1470 and then 1471 to 1483. Amazing. Okay, so we st- I was just doing my, my favourite plantagenet there. Okay, so who should we have? John. King John was 1199 until 1216. Gosh, you are incredible. Okay, because everyone else is going to be getting very, very bored, unless they're playing along at home, let's have this one. Um, King Charles II. 
1660 to 1685. So, in the, as an added bonus, <laughs> so to add to that, um, lots of acts of Parliament in this in the early modern period would date from when Charles I had his head. Um, chopped off in 1649. So a lot of the illegal stuff would actually be from 1649 to 1685. But for but for continuity purposes, <laughs> uh, most things just go from 1660 to 1685 when you got the actual crown back on his head. Awesome. I'm with you. I'm going from 1649 on that one, better just to be controversial and to annoy um, all our Commonwealth listeners. So we are going to be talking a bit about the civil war today so very very interesting time that a lot of people have been very put off from learning at school i think it's a really exciting time but we should perhaps begin before the civil war so we're going to be talking about the situation for catholics what was the situation for catholics like before the civil war because I know that anti-Catholic penal laws weren't exactly a 17th century inventions. So where did where did Catholics and their estates stand at that time? Um, yes, well, um, thank you. So as you just pointed out, it wasn't a um, a new thing that appeared out of nowhere. So for the position for Catholics, that since the Reformation in the 16th century, so going back a century before, um, Catholics had been this had been in a very awkward situation in Britain for having gone from a, a majority religion to a minority religion. And so when Elizabeth came to the throne after her sister, the Catholic Mary I, died in 1558, um, Catholics were supposed to follow the established Church of England and to, and to conform to Protestantism. And so they weren't punished initially for the first few years, even though they could be presented for not going to church and they could be fined. But we don't really see any legislation regarding their property and estates until around the 1580s. And that's when we start seeing the Jesuit missions coming to England to try and um, get Catholicism moving again as such. And obviously this is a big political threat to the, to the Church of England and to Elizabeth's Rome because obviously Elizabeth had been declared a bastard so she'd been declared illegitimate and they were worried that the Catholics could potentially try and overthrow her like had happened in other places in Europe at the time and so what they decided to do was they decided to punish Catholics um, for non-church attendance by um, sequestering their property so that's confiscating their property so that's their um, their houses their land their estates their personal goods so you know it could be their crockery it could be their libraries it could be anything like that and so they'd have those things confiscated from them but in order to get it back they had to not you know to conform and go to church or they had to pay a fine based on the value of the estates and that was normally about two-thirds of the value although sometimes you can get uh, different rates depending on you know your status your gender that sort of thing so it could be like a tenth or something like that or if you've got dependents and so until you pay that fine, you couldn't get your property back. And we started to see it change as well in the, in the early 17th century. So after the gunpowder plot in 1685, James I brings in this legislation in 1606 to try and deal with the Catholic threat, because obviously they, you know, they potentially nearly blew them up in 1605. And so what they decided to do is that not only did Catholics have to be, you know, could be sequestered and have to pay fines, both near their value of estates and fines not going to church, that they also had to swear an oath of allegiance to the king and to his authority, and that the Pope had no jurisdiction over Catholics in England, 
which obviously created some problems for Catholics. And this is thing that we will see a lot, we see come up quite a lot in the Civil War. And so you see this, this sequestration system in force for many decades before the Civil War. And so you have this system of sequestration compounding happening where estates were sequestered and then fines, the compounding fines, were paid up so Catholics could have their properties back and pretty much be technically left alone by local officials and others. And it was as an acknowledgement that they were being punished for um, not conforming, but be left well alone once they paid up their fines and just generally carried on behaving relatively well after that. So that, so that was pretty much the situation before 1642. Well, I think a lot of us are all now completely freaking out at the idea that we could have our books taken away um, for, for not behaving and not towing the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. Did these um, anti-Catholic laws, did they kind of flare up at various times? Because you mentioned the gunpowder plot, so I'm guessing there was a bit of a, a knee-jerk reaction after that. Yes, definitely. So, yes, yeah, 1605 is when you start to see it really clamping up and in the few years after that, because obviously people thought that, you know, after this uh, plotting had been going on, that there could be other secret underground ones happening. And every time there was a, um, a threat, you know, because like, I think what we forget sometimes that it's not just a domestic threat in, you know, in England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland, but it's also an international threat. So if, if things are happening on the continent as well, that has repercussions as well. And so the First Years' War um, from 1618 to 48, you start to see some bubbling tensions about the Catholic situation, like could this happen in England as well? But what's really interesting was that during the Spanish match in the early 1620s, when James I was trying to negotiate with Spain to, for his son and heir, Charles I, the future Charles I, to marry the Spanish Infanta, you see the, the, the penalty of sequestration pretty much almost lifted up in, some, in some respects, in that Catholics weren't being presented as much um, in the local quarters, uh, you know, the assizes or the quarter sessions, and sequestration is not as highly utilised. So, so you start, so you start to see that they're trying to, because they're trying to do that to try and win the, you know, to get the Spanish on the side to get the marriage negotiation sorted. Um, so you see that. But what's really interesting is that in the 1630s, bear in mind Charles I has his personal rule where he's ruling about Parliament for 11 years, and he has a Spanish, Catholic, not Spanish, a French Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria. Um, he really ramps up using sequestration compounding as a means to target Catholics, whether they're rich or poor, because normally before you had to have a bit of property to be sequestered. You know, Catholics could be fined for not, of all states, status could be fined for not going to church. You really start to see clamped up in the 1630s because he needed to raise money. So it became a much more like well-oiled machine but designed to really reap in the money. So he wasn't really on the side of Catholics, really, because he saw it as almost like a, like an extra like money bank as such to get money off Catholics. Gosh, because that's really interesting. In the run-up to the Civil War, you, Henrietta Maria is very much used as this kind of talisman for the, the evil councillors and the, the Catholic influence on the king, isn't she? So the, it really wasn't... He wasn't giving Catholics a good deal. Everyone was getting a bad deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, there were some caveats who were given exemptions. And there was a there's an example I used um, in the book of a man called John Carroll who had actually been given a special exemption in the 1630s. But normally, you have to have a bit of money and have a bit of influence to get those types of exemptions. But yeah, it's quite interesting that, you know, obviously there were Catholics being favoured in the course in the 1630s, especially in Henrietta Maria's circle and the big Catholic conversions of people like Sir Kenham Digby and others. But you, the Catholics are talking, you know, financially squeezed in a way with, with compounding and, sequest yeah, and sequestration. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very weird situation for Catholics in this period. Gosh, they can't have known where they were standing from one minute to the next. Yeah. I find this very interesting with the whole idea of religion and politics and it all being interwoven. You've already mentioned to us what sequestration is, but um, how does Parliament actually decide to use these powers? Um, is this during the civil, when the civil war breaks out, do you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah, so obviously when the war breaks out in the summer of 1642, um, Parliament is obviously trying to work out what you know, trying to do on different fronts. Obviously, they're trying to establish the fact that you know the king's just declared war on them, but also they're trying to use this sort of rhetoric that um, you know the king has been influenced, has been badly advised by evil counsellors. You know the same old rhetoric that you hear across the centuries. It's always down to bad counselling by your close knit circle. Um, so initially, they were. Um, Parliament decided to try and target those who they believed to be the causes of the civil war breaking out, or, or the English Revolution breaking out. And so they're not, so not really targeting Catholics as such. They're targeting those who they, who they deem to be popish, which <laughs> is normally tied with Catholicism, but it's those who design, who are politically motivated to try and usurp the true reformed Protestant religion. And so in their eyes at this time, it's people, it's figures like the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Lord and the bishops and those who, had, you know, used popery in the in the churches in the 1630s when they the beauty of holiness as such. And so when they're really um, redoing the churches up as such, because they've been sort of left to disrepair in, in some places. And, there was, and so they believe that by revamping some of the churches and, and just giving a bit of you know, love and care and repainting stuff and changing the old position stuff that that was designed that was popery that's going back <laughs> to the old catholic ways and so they so they, so they're targeting people like that and they're also targeting those who they were believed to you know to wrongly supporting you know supporting the king and not supporting um part parliament's liberties and the true Protestant religion and we have to think about just just a few months before the Civil War bro broke out in January 1640. This is when Charles I had attempted to arrest five MPs in Parliament, which is why today we still, the Queen cannot go in the House of Commons. She can go in the House of Lords when she opens Parliament, but she cannot go in the House of Commons. No royal can go in there because of what Charles I did. <laughs> she has to knock. <laughs> yeah, That's and so interesting. I, did, I never even knew that. Yeah, I mean, I found out a couple of years ago, and I was teaching that when the Queen opens Parliament, she has to, you know, get dressed up in the room in front of the death warrant of Charles the First. I think it's a bit of a grim reminder of what happens if you overstep your powers as such, like Charles the First did. And so this is the situation that Parliament's dealing with: is that they're dealing with people they think are acting in an arbitrary, popish, absolutist way as such. 
And so they're punishing. So that, so the first several months, that, that these are the people who they're targeting. They're not necessarily targeting Catholics as much. But after lots of um, negotiations and different acts and bills going through and ordinances, um, they decide to, in March 1648, after loads of, you know, readings and everything, to target archbishops, bishops, deans and chapters, target royalists, and they and those who they deem to be popish, but they also include Catholics in there. But so there's this, so it becomes a much more inclusive legislation, whereas before it targeted those who were deemed popish reticence and reticence. This time it's including a much bigger body of people, which is why there's over two hundred and six there's about two hundred and sixty five volumes of compounding petitions in the National Archives for this reason. It's because it suddenly includes a lot more people, whereas before it just you know included a population of which people very estimate between like between five to ten percent of the population of Catholics and suddenly months of thousands of people being sequestered. Gosh. So do you think that what what happened at this point was that effectively Catholicism and just practicing Catholics in their own homes were lumped in with this sort of fear of arbitrary rule that they were going after lord and and the deacons and and that sort of part of the church of england i think they would have definitely felt it was a very different system and situation to one they've been in before um this is the problem um with the, with the period sometimes is the word catholicism popery gets interchanged so much that it meant different things to different people and so they, they so sometimes if you were called, if you were called a you know you're a papist at the time then normally you were it normally meant you were Catholic, but then people could use it to attack you politically as well. Or you know, you're you're being too popish. And so Catholics probably were quite used to that, but suddenly to be lumped in with these other groups meant that they probably felt that this was a very, very different situation to what they dealt with before. Gosh. So what did this mean for the Catholics who were used to sequestering and, and compounding under the old system? How did they adapt to what parliament were doing at this time or could they just say do you know what we're used to an old system we're not having a new one we refuse um they pretty much had to adapt if they wanted to get their estates back and what's what's really fascinating um with 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 the english revolutionary period and this is why people should study the english revolution period in general much more is that this coincides with the lapsing of the Printing Act in 1642, which not only means that there's an explosion of all these printed sources coming out, you know, with, people, with all these pamphleteer writings and everything like that, but it also means there's a lot more parliamentary acts and ordinances being printed and orders. And so um, petitioners, whether you're Catholic or you're, a, a, you know, or a royalist or anything like that, you can actually learn how to... What, what the process was about, the new process. So you could actually pay for the new sequestration ordinance and know what, what the terms and conditions are, you know, what you're going to be sequestered for, what do you need to do to get your, your property and estates back. And if you've been you know, sequestered because you were caught up in a siege in a royalist garrison, for example, it will tell you who's included and who's excluded from being allowed to you know, compound for their estates and in what terms they can do that. And you especially in the 1650s and 1640s you re you really see catholics reference and delinquents referencing these specific acts and ordinances and orders um, to to compound their estates so they say so sometimes you'll get um a catholic saying 
or delinquent saying, I'm sequestering, you know, I'm compounding under the terms of the Articles of Newark. So it will say where they've been, where they've been captured, for example. And sometimes they'll say under the under this act passed 1651, I'm entitled to X, Y and Z. So it's really, really fascinating. So they probably weren't happy that they had to learn a new system because you wouldn't be because, you know, you, 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 you're used to a, new, a system that had been you know, going for quite a long time. And suddenly having to learn a new system would have been not only complicated for those who'd never been sequestered before, but it's going to be complicated for those who'd been, you know, you know compounding for estates for a long, long time, but can suddenly find themselves charged not only for recency, but they can be charged for um, what they say, royalist delinquency or papist delinquency or delinquency. So again, you see all these interchangeable terms being used. And so it became a lot more complicated for, for, for everyone, but particularly Catholics, just because they had been sequestered and compounding in that process before. Gosh. Look, talking to a 20th century historian here. <laughs> Okay, I'm History. going to bring it up. History, she calls it. <laughs> Modern day politics. Modern day politics. <laughs> Yesterday. Exactly, exactly. Can you, can you explain this to me? I mean, how did the Catholics frame their petitions to get the best deal? Because that's what you want. You want the best deal from Parliament for their estates. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, what's, what's really fascinating, so I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of petitions, mainly obviously from Catholics, as that's what the book's on. But obviously, I've also looked at other delinquent ones as well. So they all follow pretty much the same pattern. So you'll say, you know, I am such and such. So, for example, I could say, you know, the um, John Savage, Carl Rivers, for example. I... And you'll say your, your status, whether you're a gentleman, a peer, um, yeoman, whatever. And then you'll say what you've been sequestered for. So it could be residency, papers delinquency, delinquency, etc. And then it'll say why you think you should be allowed to compound. So whether it's because you you were pro proclaiming your innocence or, you know, you had been you had def you had been fighting for the king, but you've seen the error of your ways pretty much. And, you, <laughs> and yeah, you're a loyal citizen of part you know for parliament and then you'll normally say on the, the next part what things you've done to in order to compound for the states whether you paid the first half of the fine which is known as the moiety or you know you swore specific oaths of allegiance to parliament whether it's the negative oath the oath of abjuration the protestation there's so many different oaths floating around at this point so you normally have to say which ones you've done and then you normally have to have the evidence to back that up with, whether it's a certificate from those who witnessed you swearing these oaths or someone confirming that you've paid the fine. And then you submit that and then you hope that they will let you officially compound as such. And normally you had to do this in a place called the Committee for Compounding in London. So normally when the process started, you would submit your first petition as such to the County Sequestration Committee where you lived or normally sometimes where you were captured normally it's going to be in your in your home county as such because normally that's where you're where you're found when you're captured and then it again gets sent to london and then you have to actually do go to london to present your case and then that's where you hopefully to compound for your estates and so that's pretty much how all the petitions by and large follow the same formula across the 1640s 1650s so it's really it was always really fascinating to see how how they changed so when there wasn't one you know you get the occasional one where it's not quite in that in that form it is quite interesting but it was very rare for that to happen so pretty much it all followed the same structure 
who they were, why they were, you know, what they were sequestered for, why they believed they should be allowed to compound, and what they had done in order to, you know, to prove that they should be allowed to compound. Gosh, this must be the most fascinating bunch of archives to get in, not just from a, the point of view of finding out who was what, who was where, who owned what, but also this wonderful sort of um, <laughs> this sort of uh, petitioning for yourself and oh no I wasn't really doing that and oh I'm being really good now and I'm I'm going to behave and I've seen the error of my ways. How long could you just lose yourself in all of that? Oh, oh, quite, oh, quite easily. And because what I did for the for the book was um, not only did I look at the what the Committee for Compounding Petitions and the Sequestration Order books in Kew in the National Archives, but I also went. I had quite set quite a lot of cases, as you probably saw in the book, where so I went to a lot of the county record offices or the personal family papers as well. So I was travelling across the country, checking it. And what's really fascinating is so sometimes you'll get actual copies of the petitions that you see in queue, also in the county record office. So it was really nice to see if, first of all, if they replicated it correctly, but also if, if things were added extra bits or anything like that. And it was really, really fascinating just, just, you know, to try and see, the, follow the paper trail across the years, because it wasn't like it was done and dusted in a few months. Sometimes these things will go on for years. And so it was really fascinating to see that progress go, go along and different people appearing or not appearing, you know, and how, and, how these things just dragged on for a long time. So you can see, really see the long-term effects this will have on an, an individual or in a family as a whole. So, mm. that's, so, so, I, so I loved it. I, I still love doing looking at sexually compounding petitions. Ladies oh. and gentlemen, if you could only see the looks on these two ladies' faces <laughs> right now. Okay, Charlie is like, oh my God, this is so amazing. I am. I find, this, I find it completely riveting because, you know, my, my area, I mean, I love, 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 love the Civil War. I think more people should know, know about it. My area is a little bit later and during the Restoration. And of course, there are so many interesting Catholic figures, whether they are open or, or covert in their in their catholicism and you do you you fall in love with the family and you realize that oh there was there's one couple and all three of their sons end up in rome and you think oh, of course they were a catholic family and you look back and you realize yep they had secret priest holes and, and you, you can't help it can you eilish you yeah, you do, yeah, you become quite attached to them because they become quite real and personal to you. And, and you know, when when something bad happens to them, you actually really feel it, even though it, hap it happened, you know, centuries ago. Exactly. Oh, we're total nerds. So, <laughs> I mean, they they just you you forget that people, despite despite it being a very long time ago were in fact human people with lives and concerns so what were what were the relationships like between ordinary catholics and ordinary protestants at the time during the civil war was it was it beef on the streets or did they <laughs> get along or <laughs> um well, as you can imagine, with most time periods, it's it's not an easy, it's not a quite as straightforward as you think. Um, answer wise, because obviously there's sometimes there's that perception of like, oh, because it's Catholics versus Protestants, you know, that they're going to be clashing, you know, almost like a muskets at dawn type of behaviour. A West but, Side um, Story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, two houses, <laughs> all that. <laughs> um, but no, what's really, what's always been quite fascinating, um, especially when I was doing the preliminary research to this, is that 
as you can imagine, even today, um, you trust those who are who who have been around in your area for a long time. So even if they, if, so you get a lot of Catholics in local communities getting incredibly well with their Protestant neighbours and with Protestant officials because even though they're following the the, the, the wrong religion as such, you know. As long as they, they you know, they, they live quietly and they're not trying to cause trouble, you know, they, they participate in their society, they're going, they're going to be getting along quite fine with them. It's only those who come in from nowhere, the, the aliens, as they get dubbed in this period. Um, that's when it's the one. That's when you get suspicious. Like, well, who are they? Do we trust them? What they do? Are they, you know, are they going to cause, cause you know, trouble? And so, actually, even before the Civil War broke out, you would sometimes get Catholic, you know, Protestants who would either overlook things or not represent their Catholic neighbours as much at local sizes. And sometimes you'd even get Catholics not having to pay a, such a higher fine for not being, you know, for going to church. Because normally you had to pay um, a certain amount of money per week. But once it reached four weeks continuously of not going to church, for example, you had to pay a £20 a month fine, which obviously is going to cripple you. <laughs> Yeah. in this time period and so sometimes what they would do um, some local officials that they would present the catholics for three weeks and then not present them for the following week and then so they'd pay like if like 20 pence a month or you know or something along those like i can't remember what the what the exact pence was per month but basically pence per month versus trade pounds a month is going to make a massive difference yeah so you I can almost poor. game in a system <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <It's so poor. laughs> Because at the end of the day, especially for some officials, you know, you want to punish them, but you don't want to literally ruin them. Because at the end of the day, you're going to, especially for some officials, you're going to lose your cash cow as well. You don't want, you don't want to find them so much they're not going, you're not going to be able to, you know, get money out of Catholics on a regular basis for some cynical ones. And mm. so, so you get this position in the Civil War where, I mean, obviously you're, you're not going to get good relationships with every every place. So obviously there's only so if you've got long-standing feuds that's not going to work very well because um, so, you know, they're the ones that are going to target you but during the civil war and, and the interregnum periods it's really fascinating in that um you still see this relationship forged quite well in some communities where officials treated catholics courteously and you know they still had i mean even those who had to you know suppress the catholics or report them you know, they, they would actually apologise for it. I mean, there's a really lovely example I found um, for, Mary, for Mary Savage um, and, 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 the, and the Rivers family in Suffolk and in Essex, where during the... Uh, I should, I should, it's not Mary Savage, it's Penelope Gage. Sorry, there, there is a Mary Savage I looked at as well. This is the problem when you've got so many different intermarriages going along. Okay. You've got Savage's Gages, but no, it's Penelope Gage. I should have that just as a correction there. So just before the English Revolution broke out, um, because of the Irish Rebellion that happened in 1641, which um, for those of you who aren't so aware, was when there was a big uprising in Ireland where... Um, hundreds potentially thousands of protestants were massacred by catholics and they feared this could happen in england and so what happens that there was orders going around for for people's properties to be searched you know for those suspected or known to be catholics to have their you know property searched for weapons and have it taken away from them and what had happened in the in the correspondence that you can see of the gage family is that once someone who ended up becoming her third husband 
I think, came and warned her that, that the officials were coming to confiscate the weapons race at night, like midnight raid as such. And they turned up, confiscated the, the weapons. You know, she said, you know, they're of the old, you know, the antique use. They haven't been used for several decades. They're not going to do any harm to anyone sort of thing. But they actually apologised. They said, you know, we've been told we've got to do this, but we but we'll take good care of them. We won't damage your weapons. <laughs> and, they, and they actually wrote a letter to the mother-in-law, who was the Countess Rivers, again, to apologise about it and say, you know, we know you've conformed, but we've been, we know, we've got the orders that we have to take them away. But we know we, we showed good deference to you as a peer, as a, you know, as, you know, to your daughter. And, that, you know, we won't go, we're not going to damage your property as such. So that's, that was one really interesting example, just to show that they you know, that there was some care and consideration for that so it wasn't you know you know have that you have a sort of mythical thing you know, that they're just going to that there's a very cold relationship there, you know it's a lot more complicated than that and i think this is what's really fascinating about english revolutionary period in general that it wasn't you know the old trope if you go back to like the children of the new forest book you know roundheads versus cavaliers it's a lot more complicated yeah. it's a lot more gray it's not black and white at all Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's a horrible moment when, as a royalist, you realize that actually some of the parliamentarians had really good hair as well, and you don't know who you should be cheering on. It gets very confusing. But I'm, you know, you, you touched on something there, which I, which I think is really, really important. I'm so guilty of this, being very, very Anglo-centric when it comes to talking about this period. It wasn't just the English Civil War. It was a war of three kingdoms. So in terms of the, the treatment of Catholics being used to being sequestered and, and compounding and all of this, what about the... Scottish Catholics what about the Irish Catholics well this is where it gets really really complicated and with the I should add for the book I concentrated pretty much on the English Catholic perspective just because that's where my sources were and everything and it's something I'm I haven't deliberately ignored as such because it um book two I'm planning yeah. to do, to do <laughs> um, looking at sequestration compounding across a much broader period so from reformation up to end of the 18th century but including Scotland Wales Ireland and the um, colonies in America you know where, where Britain set camp in as such because it because you even get sequestered property in this period in in in, in the colonies as well in yeah. like Maryland and in the Caribbean um but I do touch upon it here and there, and it is really fascinating because normally it's outside influences which are causing this. So when um, the Irish Rebellion happened and other and other events, you see this having repercussions in England towards English Catholics. And there's another example of um, 
there's a Catholic called John Cowell who is based in Sussex, and he tried to demonstrate his loyalty to Parliament during this period as an ardent um, parliamentarian supporter. And not only saying, you know, I fed your soldiers when they came through Sussex and that sort of thing, but it was a fact that he gave £500 to fight against Irish Catholic, the Irish Catholic rebels in, in, the, in the beginning of the... Um, uh, in the aftermath of the Irish Rebellion. And obviously he's an English Catholic, but he's trying to differentiate himself from the Irish Catholics. Like you say, you know, I'm Catholic, but I'm a true loyal citizen. <laughs> They're the naughty ones, pretty much. The foreign ones. They're the ones you want to look out for. <laughs> yeah. So I touched so I touched upon the situation a little bit in Wales and a tiny bit in Scotland, but I have to say it's mainly English centric just because that's where my sources were. And there's only so much you can do for for what for for your first book as such, <laughs> but 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 it is the, the long term plan to re, to take all this in and to see the patterns um, that form in this period. And what's I mean, especially with the English Revolution period in general, it's such a different experience for them compared to what happened before the Civil War and what happened after 1660. And so it does deserve its own treatment in this book on its own. But yeah, but it's something that I definitely will take into consideration more. It's just there's only so much you can do for for book one. Very confusing. <laughs> I think the next question is kind of appropriate for a poor delinquent Catholic like myself. Because <laughs> I would be incredibly poor and I am a delinquent. So did Catholics try to forge relationships with the new regime or were they actively involved in delinquency, get the right word, by default? And were any of them generally loyal to the Commonwealth or were they doing it probably like I would have done with fingers crossed behind their backs? Oh, it's, it's a very interesting question because, it, as you can imagine, it's a lot more complicated. What some people who study uh, who study a one period don't quite realise, you know, because obviously we know there's different branches of Protestantism floating around in this period. So obviously, you know, you've got those who follow the Church of England, you've got the Sicinians, you've yeah. got the, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, the, what people normally call the Puritans, and um, though people don't normally like to use that term so much anymore. But what people don't realise is that there's a lot of Catholic factions in this period as well. And this has sort of really taken off during the affluent controversy at the turn of the 17th century when Catholics were split on how to demonstrate their loyalty to Elizabeth I. So there were some camps who said, no, well, we want to swear an oath of allegiance to Elizabeth. We want it on how we want to write it ourselves as such. And there were others like, nope, not, nope, whatever. It's, and it was also down to loyalty towards a bishop nomination as well to have a catholic bishop in england again so it's a it's a very complicated period as such so this has caused some split and with the jacobean oath of allegiance in 1606 that complicated things so so you had some catholics who would swear you know the oath probably practicing what they called mental equivocation so you're swearing your oath but you're adding in your head like sub clauses on on that to, to, to try you know conscientiously evade doing it because you know obviously because it's all down to conscious isn't it so you, you know if you're adding like subcourses in your head then people would claim you're you're not taking the oath properly and so there were some cases who actually omitted certain sections as well so so you see this happening a lot in the civil in the english revolutionary period as well so you had some catholics who um you know define themselves as recusants and and you know still consider the pope as their you know their 
as their primary agency to swear allegiance to. But it also complicates the fact that there were Catholics who were quite happy as, as such to swear the oaths, probably either just because they want their property back or because they, they saw themselves as Catholic, you know, loyal to the state, but in different ways. And you have a lot of Catholics in the late 1640s who were actually negotiating with the, with the parliamentary regime for an alternative oath to swear called the Free Propositions. And they're doing this also with some certain members of the clergy, you know, Catholic clergy as well. And so, you know, it's a big front to try and get this like alternative oath and propositions for Catholic liberty of conscience and such under the new regime. So this is when Charles I hadn't even been put on trial at this point. That um, after the execution of Charles I in 1649, and Rump Parliament being established and republicanism being established, you see a lot of different groups coming out again. So you had some Catholics who were royalists, who were support, who had either gone into exile with um, with the exiled Stuarts, and were obviously planning to try and get the throne back. Obviously, because they think if they support, you know, get the Stuarts back on the throne, they'll get get, get their liberty of conscience or even toleration as such. Mm. But you had some Catholics at the same time who thought, well, actually. This is a new regime. We could actually try and get some new terms for. So even though the three propositions have failed because the Pope refused to endorse it, um, there were some old, there were some people who were trying to persuade Cromwell and other figures to give some sort of liberty of conscience. Um, what's really fascinating is that there was an act passed, which is known um, sort of um, as the Toleration Act. That's not its official title. That's what it's normally referred to. And that was passed in 1650. And while Catholics weren't included in the act, at the same time, they couldn't technically be punished for not going to church. They just couldn't practice their faith. And so Catholics were in a bit of a weird situation anyway, up until 1657, where they could be presented at, um, at quarter sessions of sizes again um, for refusing to go to church before Catholicism and such. But you had people, figures like Sir Kenon Digby, who I mentioned earlier, who had converted to Catholicism, He's a really fascinating figure and who actually did a whole section in, in chapter six on because he's just really interesting because he seemed to get on well on both sides of the camps as such. Like he was an ardent royalist during, during the English Revolution, went into exile with Henrietta Maria and the court. But then and he had his estates sequestered as well during this period. But he ends up coming and he's part of this faction called the Black Lois which is a minority Catholic faction headed by a man called Thomas White and others who are an intellectual group. So they're, they, you know, they're promoting philosophy, mathematics and other things, but they're also trying to get tolerate, toleration for Catholics and such. And Thomas White writes this famous work called The, um, the Grounds of Obedience of Government um, in 1655, which was basically set offering allegiance and loyalty to Cromwell, but on certain terms to basically say, we'll give you loyalty, but if we find that you're being acting tyrannously, we can withdraw that loyalty. <laughs> so, which doesn't go down very well with Cromwell, and that doesn't go down well with Charles II either in the 16th, when he comes back in, after 1660, because Thomas White ends up going to exile. So Kenan Digby they, is part of this group, but despite that, he comes back to England in the early 1650s, and he is gets on incredibly well with Cromwell, like almost like friendship levels of um, of relationship with, with Cromwell. And yeah, Cromwell's dining with Catholic with with Catholic peers during the 1650s when a um, Jesuit priest gets um, 
executed and hung, drawn and quartered. He actually let the, the body be sewn back together, the four pieces, and, and send it back to France for burial. Because <sighs> That's nice. That's lovely. Charlie's got just, a problem with, uh, with Cromwell, so uh, you can hear the sarcasm <laughs> in her voice. No, I completely understand. Cromwell's uh, a very... Um, we killed him, but we killed him back I think probably the nicest way to say about Cromwell is he's a bit of a Marmite character. You either love him or you hate him, sort of thing. Yeah, but he's also he's he's fun to he's fun to argue with people about. So Kenneth Digby, I mean, he just sounds like such an he really is such an interesting character, isn't he? Yeah, and the thing is, when when Charles II comes back to the throne in 1660, and Henrietta Maria comes back, so he stays in England for a couple of years, in back in Somerset House. Kenan Digby is hired up again to be Chancellor of our household. So he's managed to able, so that's why he had to be in the book, because, you know, he managed to float in there on all these different camps, while also trying to get his property back, but also trying to pledge loyalty to and try and get support from Cromwell in his period, but also at the same time still being quite charismatic enough to be brought back into the Stuart fold after the Restoration. So he's yeah. absolutely fascinating as a figure. Yeah. Is, is his brother George Digby? Who becomes Earl of Bristol? Are they, is that are they those Digby's? No, this is the problem. I mean, I I think I don't. I think this is the problem when you've got the same surname. I don't think he is because Digby was a convert, another convert. So he may be like a distant branch. I, there's probably going to be someone who's going to correct me afterwards <laughs> on here. Um, but no, um, there was George Digby was. Um, a convert, so I know that much, and he was, the, as you say, the Earl of Bristol, mm. and he attacks actually the Earl of Clarendon in the 1660s um, for for for, other, for many other things. And people say, well, why are you attacking? You know, he's a repute, you know, you're a reputed papers. Why enough are you doing this sort of thing? So again, complicated periods. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's just absolutely fascinating. So for I think the best thing to take away from that is that there's so many different Catholic factions floating around trying to get negotiate an alternative you know form of tolerant toleration for catholics or liberty of conscience for catholics that we can't just say that the catholics are all singing on the same hymn page because they're not they're all singing on very different hymn pages and hoping <laughs> one of them will succeed in the end god you've you've moved us on very nicely to our next question by mentioning the earl of clarendon um who is a very big figure so what happens to sequestration after the restoration and, and what what did that mean for Catholics because I'm guessing surely King Charles II comes back and he says I'm going to do my best to make things better for families that had helped him in some ways. Yeah and again it, it's all very complicated because I think Charles Charles, before Charles II comes back to England, because um, he lands back in England um, late May 1660, and he's invited back um, a couple months before, he issues this, this, this document called the Declaration of Breeder from the Netherlands, where he's actually promising liberty of conscience to all his subjects, and that's including Catholics. And I think he generally wanted this declaration. He wanted liberty of conscience for his subjects. I think, and I generally do think he did want that. But as you can imagine, so many different factors at play. You see all the laws that existed under Elizabeth and James I being brought back to Catholics as soon as he comes back to because Parliament passes that you know all the all the law all the laws before the Civil War come back against Catholics, and so Catholics are being presented and sequestered again for residency, as you can imagine. Not again. 
but back on the old system and this is and, and, so you start seeing it all returning back to that. I mean, this is something to add to, to listeners as well. During the Civil War and interregnum periods, all the documents are in English. Yeah. Beforehand, they were all in Latin, legal Latin. All, all reverts back to legal Latin after 1660. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, of course, that, that's partly what has made this such an attractive period for you to study. Yeah, I mean, I have, I have a bit, I should add, I do have a bit of Latin, a bit <laughs> rusty, but I, but you can find the terms like recusancy, it's like, yeah, this is all, this is all the Catholic stuff. It's also quite a good way of knowing what's all about cows. The amount of document recusancy roles is all involving cows. That's, that is absolutely hilarious. I mean, I've, I've seen from, from this period, you know, that we're, we're going into the number of times that, that Charles tried to push for toleration and the Declaration of Indulgence, and every time it would get thrown out, and it would always tie in with some little flare-up of um, of dissent, either from Anglicans or from hardly ever from Catholics, but mostly ever from Anglicans. Yes, it's, it's the fifth monarchists and those groups. Yes, it's, no, it's not the Catholics. You know, there's always rumours that there's, you know, 200 papers up north who are getting ready to rise up. There's been rumours floating around, like in Stony Stratford or something like that. And, yeah, so so when you have, like, the Conventicle Act and other acts passed through um, during this period, you, you, it's targeting Catholics again. But he doesn't... So there are some Catholics who I looked at in the case studies, and I think you see this more in the conclusion, where I talk about the ones, you know, how do they all fare? And, again, complicated mixed picture so you have people like the um i forgot what the name was <laughs> john arundel the arundel family for example um he did quite well so he was definitely so you know definitely supporting the boys cause during the um english revolutionary period though he does conform and then you know to to parliament and things like that um he gets to become master of the horse which obviously is quite a big prominent position in the 1660s Whereas people like the Constable family who didn't fare very well, kept proclaiming their innocence, that they were, you know, loyal to Parliament, even though they kept being suspected of um, royalism. Um, they were allowed to hunt game, but yeah, they didn't do very, financially very well out of it. But they managed to get their estates pretty much back, so that's always a good thing. Because um, um, I talk about in the book as well about sec- the role of sequestration agents um, during this period, which you start to see the roots forming in the 1640s, 1650s, and it really takes off by the end of the uh, 17th century, where lawyers become a much more bigger thing for Catholics trying to protect their estates. And um, so you have to say, some Catholics do okay, some Catholics don't. It all depends on on how they are, what their influences are, you know, and their importance as such as well, and also how useful they have been as well during this period. Um, so Catholics could be presented presented again for recusancy and everything like that. Um, but I suppose the question really to think to to think about really is was it any worse? It depends on the it depends on the family and, and whether you got your estates out. By and large, because um, I mostly looked at gentry Catholics, because um, after 1645, if you had property in the state worth more than 200 pounds, you're going to get targeted anything under. No, no. So, so, so basically, they're targeting the ones who could afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, by and large, I think they 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 didn't know better or worse, but I think they it was slightly better for them in the long run. Um, 
Well, I suppose by going back to the old system meant that they knew they were going back to just you know the regular you know, the regular. Oh, I didn't go to church. Here's my fine. Here's my receipt. <laughs> that sort of thing as well. Oh, do you think but, there was a bit of a cash cow for for parliaments, various parliaments, not necessarily just in the civil war? Do you think it was just you know we need we need to fill up the coffers, go after the Catholics again. Yeah, it's a good way to show the people if there's, if there's concern that Catholics, you know, are potentially, cause, you know, building up unrest or something. That we're doing, we've got, we've got, we're reinforcing the Jacobean and Elizabethan laws. We're, we're saying our part. We're reissuing the laws. We're going to get more people <laughs> being presented. And you see this constantly throughout the 17th century and also in the 18th century, like even like in 1720, 1730s, because I've already started the preliminary research into this. So I've done a bit for Ireland and for England for the, up to the 18th century. So, so it will be done. Ireland and Scotland <laughs> Wales will be included, um, but obviously COVID. Um, so you still, even in the 1720s, 1730s, seeing the Jacobean Elizabethan laws being referenced for Catholics being presented. And it's always during times where there's been some unrest. So like in the 1720s, it's because, you know, you had like, the, Jacob, the, the Jacobite rebellions. It's like, oh... Right, we better start bringing them through. <laughs> we better start punishing them again. Obviously, <laughs> using the Jacobite, the Jacob, you know, the Jacobite fresh as a reason, and a justifiable yeah. big reason to present them. <laughs> I often found that with with some of the Catholic families I'm looking at, if if they were deemed to be no threat, then they were just allowed to get on with it. Like the Earl of Berkshire, who Parliament decided was so stupid, he was no threat, so they let him keep his house. I think it's great. Yeah, it just, it just, it's amazing. It's, it's just amazing, isn't it? It's like there was a special exemption, but even by Parliament, of um, the, the Earl of Albans in the 1640s. Because even they, they say to that, even though he's Catholic, he actually went to Ireland for us to fight against the Irish Catholic rebels. Yeah. Therefore, we're, we're, we're especially exempting him because he's actually shown true loyalty to us sort of thing. So, but yeah, but I love the, I love the Earl of Berkshire example. That's, that's absolutely great. <laughs> Alice, this has been so, so interesting for a 20th century historian, especially. I've been sitting at the end of my seat, uh, <laughs> listening to the sequestration, I still can't say the word now. I'm starting to panic with that word, um, especially for someone who is Catholic and having to listen to what these people went through. It's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. So I'm so glad you've come here and explained all of this and actually given us something positive that has come out of it, even though there was quite a lot of negative there is something that did come out that was good so thank you so much no thank you it's been so much fun to talk about and geek about it as well <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen don't forget to head to our bookstore uh, where you'll be able to pick up a copy uh, of Eilish's book titled uh, Catholics during the English Revolution 1642 to 1660 politics sequestration and loyalty thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you so much you can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There are different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, 
The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So, to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.